Screaming Chewy Show, your source of entertainment and overall fuckery. And it starts now. Warning, content not suitable for children. Listener discretion advised, yo. Yo, are you listening to this on your way to work? Just waking up? Yeah, coffee hasn't kicked in, huh? Need to get pumped, yo. So how about this? I got you. How about we start this episode off with a freaking badass metal song? Hmm? Yeah, this is a band called Veritas, and song it's called Morbid Stale. Yeah.
Hey everyone, Chewy here, host of Screaming Chewy Show. Yeah! And hey, what's today's episode about, right? We'll get this. You know, we've all, we all, I don't know about you, but I would love to travel the world anywhere, right? Of course, I've traveled here and there, but I want to explore, right? You got that drive. You just want to see the whole fucking planet, right? Now, you know, you see in the movies, right? You get that idea. There's a globe right there. And you spin the globe. And you're like, I'm going to stop it with my finger. Wherever it stops, that's where I'm going, right? Hey, maybe that's where you want to live, right? Bam. Just random fucking crazy as shit but I'm gonna give you a little bit of advice right because maybe there's some parts of the world where you may not want to live you know some parts of the world that are very fucking dangerous and you will die maybe and um yeah I'll go over some of those you know like you ever heard of slab city yeah sounds badass huh Slab city trick, slab city trick, yeah, oh, uh, boom. It could be a SoundCloud rapper right there, huh? Anywho, on with the show. So, Slab City, also called The Slabs, is a largely snowbird community in the Sonoran Desert, located in Imperial County, California, 100 miles northeast of San Diego, and 169 miles southeast of Los Angeles within the California Badlands. Sounds badass already, huh? And used by recreational vehicle owners, RVs, and squatters from across North America. Oh shit, RV squatter land? What? (laughs) Anywho. It took its name from concrete slabs that remained from the abandoned World War II Marine Corps barracks of Camp Dunlap. Hope I pronounced that right. (laughs) Several thousand campers, many of them retired, used the site during the winter months. The snowbirds, quote-unquote, stay only for the winter before migrating north in spring to cooler climates. The temperatures during summer are high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Eh, not very much different from here in Arizona. Nonetheless, there's a group of around 150 permanent residents, tough motherfuckers right there, who live in the slabs year-round. Yeah, these are probably the people you don't fuck with, yo. These are the survivors. We'll get into that. Now... Uh, some of these uh, slabbers, right? Is let's call them slabbers, right? Derive their living from government programs and have been driven to the slabs by poverty. Others have moved to the slabs to learn how to live off the grid and be left alone. Still, others have moved there to stretch their retirement income. Yeah. Off-graders got to be careful. Government don't like that. Uh, if you listen to my episode where uh, <clears throat> talk about Ruby Ridge, <laughs> uh huh. Fuck what I what I call that episode something bullet storm apocalyptic bullet storm. 
Yeah, some off-grader shit right there versus the government. Anywho, back to fucking uh, Slap City, yo. Slap City trick. The site is both decommissioned and uncontrolled, and there's no charge for parking. The site has no official electricity, running water, sewers, toilets, or trash pickup service. Many, many residents use generators or solar panels to generate electricity. Fuck, hear that chopper? Fucking distracted me. Anywho, uh, the closest body of civilization with proper law enforcement is approximately four miles southeast of Slab City in Nyland, Nyland, I don't know, where the residents often go to do basic shopping. As a result, the site is described by its inhabitants and news outlets like Vice News as a miniature de facto enclave of anarchy. And I know what you're thinking, Chewy. World War II? Marines? What the fuck? The fuck? I want to know more about Slab City. I want to know about that history, yo. Well, I got you. You ready? Sitting down? Okay. There was need for a new training facility for field and anti-aircraft artillery units. To create the training base, uh, 631.345 acres were obtained. The government announced that the base to be named after Brigadier General Robert Henry Dunlap, USMC, after construction of Camp Dunlap was completed, it was commissioned on October 15th, night of 1942. The camp had fully functional buildings, water, roads, and sewage collections. The base was used for three years during the war. By 1949, military operations at Camp Dunlap had been greatly reduced, but a skeleton crew continued on until the base was dismantled. By 1956, all buildings had been dismantled, but the slabs remained. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting it right, it's coming together. As of October 6, 1961, a quitclaim deed conveying the land to the state of California was issued by the Department of Defense as it was determined the land was no longer required. The deed did not contain any restrictions, recapture clauses, or restoration provisions. All of the former Camp Dunlap buildings had been removed. The remaining slabs were not proposed for removal. Later, legislation required that revenue generated from this property go to the California State Teachers Retirement System. Wait, you're telling me... California state teachers they're retired are getting money from Slab City what the fuck I don't know I'm lost right there so here's a little story right parked in desert waiting out the winter of life this is brought to you by the New York Times nytimes.com Slab City California directions to purgatory are as follows from Los Angeles Drive, East Palm Springs, into the bowels of the Mojave Desert. Wait, wasn't it Sonoran Desert? 
Anywho, turn south at the stench of the Salton Sea. Proceed down Highway 111 to the town of Nyland or Nyland. Oh no, I fucked it up before. <laughs> a broken down place of limited possibilities. Turn left on a main street. Head down the road to the railroad tracks where the law sometimes waits, as though the tracks were an international boundary. Where are you going? asked the deputy, Frank Lopez, on a recent night, even though the road leads to just one place, the slabs. Bored stiff, the deputy spun a ghost story about drugged out crazies, a cult in a blue bus, a child molester, a man who sleeps with rattlesnakes, a mobster on the lamb, and, and old people, flocks of old people who have traded in their picket fences for a mobile home and a life on the drift. The best thing to do, he said, is to turn around. Five miles down is a sign. Welcome to Slab City, marketing the entrance of this former World War II military base. The only suggestion of life this night was flickering of campfires at a makeshift mission. Some men stood around a fire, casting silhouettes with a vaguely sinister feel. Among them was the pastor, Phil Hyatt, he ought some shit, who shared some coffee and a few paraphrased biblical, biblical passages. The Pentecostal preacher excused himself and shambled back to his trailer. First the shoes came off, then the coins went on the nightstand. The bed springs creaked, then he cried. Poor pastor. Pastor Hyatt, at 69, has inherited the burden of living. His wife, Audrey, died this year after suffering a stroke here in the desert wasteland. The memory of her scent is everywhere. Ah, he's lonely, and it's tough to see it, said Rusty, 73, who sat at the pastor's fire, warming himself. Rusty looked and smelled like a bum. The price paid, he said, for freedom. Nobody particularly wants to die out here in the desert. But the living's free. Slab City is not so sinister as its strange, forlorn quarter of America. It is a town that is not really a town, a former training grounds with nothing left but the concrete slabs where the barracks stood. General George's patent trained troops here, pilots of the Enola Gay practiced their atomic mission. D dropping dummy bombs into the sea. The land belongs to the state, but the state, like the law, does not bother, and so the slabs have become a place to park free. More than 3,000 elderly people settle in for the winter, a pattern that dates back at least 20 years. They're mostly single, divorced, or widowed, a whole generation on the road, independent, alone. In this place, to be 55 years old is to be young. There are no amenities, no potable water, no electricity, no sewage. Groceries can be picked up. Groceries can be picked up in town at the grubby market, whose manager do not seem to mind that hundreds of people fill their jugs from the water tap. 
mail is routed to a post office box, Nyland, California, 92257. Gasoline is bought in distant towns like Brawley. Prescriptions and liquor are bought in Mexico. Sewage is held in storage tanks or holes in the ground. The north side of Main Street is poverty flats. The south side, the suburbs, where the relatively well-to-do motor homies have their dinner dances and clubhouse trailers. Eh, so far sounds fun, right? Shit. Cole Robertson lives in the flats with his wife. Mabel, Miss, Mr. Robertson, 72, is a retired construction worker from East Texas who cuts an intimidating figure sitting shirtless with one roomy eye, a watermelon physique, and a cotton field vocabulary. Uh-huh. Guess we we could all guess <laughs> what kind of things he talks about, right? <clears throat> Anywho, an argument with a neighbor last year ended with one of the Robertson's trailers in a flames. Damn! That is how law is dispensed in the flats, vigilante style. One man was dragged to death a few years ago. Another shot in the kneecap last year. Occasionally, the deputies do come around, usually in the day, to exercise a warrant or to remove children who have not been seen in school for months. But normally, justice comes at the end of matchstick in the flats. Damn, doing Jesus' work sent up to hell. There ain't no rules, Mr. Robertson said. He told of his neighbors and an aging man who lives with his voices in the rundown bus. A geriatric transvestite, a no good who strapped his kids to a tree and left him in the sun. A few years ago, a man tried making scrap metal from an unexploded aluminum shell he found at the bombing range in the near nearby Chocolate Mountains. Chocolate Mountains. Chocolate! <clears throat> he succeeded, but at the cost of his own life, his legs had to be picked from a tree. <laughs> Guess it was a non-explosive uh, till he cracked it open, right? Kind of reminds me of Joe Dirt. <laughs> I bet he wishes it was just shit coming out instead of fucking exploding. Anywho, it was in this anarchy eight years ago that Pastor... Hyatt stumbled upon his life's purpose. He discovered the slabs quite by accident. He and Audrey had packed up their whole life, sold a house in Lebanon, or left their jobs at the titanium plant where he was a shift foreman, said goodbye to their children and their obligations, and struck out on the road. He was always he was not always a good man. He admits that. He had a temper and hard fists. Yeah. But he came across a band of rolling revivalists that first year on the road and followed them to Minnesota. He was ordained by the worldwide ministries without ever studying at seminary and seems a little embarrassed by this. Stuck near near Nyland or Nyland, the pastor inquired about a place to camp in a RV for the evening. A stranger told him about the slabs five miles down the road. 
Upon seeing the privation and sadness and isolation, the preacher and his wife believed that the Creator had given them a second life. They built the Slab City Christian Center out of modular housing and began to preach and feed October through April. When the weather is clement and the slabs come to life, when people were found dead in their trailers, the pastor and his wife were there with a psalm. They gave children rides to the hospital. The Hyatts paid for the work from their life savings. But Audrey was felled by a stroke in February and passed in May. When she died, the pastor's self-assurance faltered and he found that he had become one of the lost, emotionally stranded with one foot in hell and the other on an ice cube. Huh. Welcome to Slab City. I didn't really understand before how much I needed this place, the pastor said. I need it, especially this year. Rusty. Rusty's been a good man to me. The pastor and Rusty make the most unlikely of friends. The pastor, a clean-cut man with a bristly haircut and a clean, strong hands. Rusty, the doubter who cleans his shirt once a week in a bucket. <laughs> Rusty, who tells about a prepubescent military career. Rusty, whose smell and language comes from the stables. Rusty, who came in on a bus and says he ran a militia out of his camp for 12 years in case the Mexicans invaded the South or the FBI from the East. Everybody can't fit into the middle class life, said Rusty, who wore a military shirt and cap, military boots, long fingernails, as thick as seashells, suffice is to stay. Rusty does not want people to know him and does not disclose his last name. Sounds like Bill from The Last of Us. The evening was cold and dark, the air thick with the smells of burning salt oak as Slab City went to sleep. A Frank Sinatra record played somewhere across the salt flats. The thunder of booms clapped on the far side of the chocolate mountains. Rusty smoked by himself in a broken down camper with the flat wheels and camouflage netting, a lamp burned in the pastor's trailer. Rusty talked about a daughter who did not want anything to do with him, a wife he reckoned was working a truck stop somewhere between California and Texas. But Rusty is human. He dreams of a rich woman from the south side of the slabs. They wear makeup. Those girls over there in the RVs, they use toilets instead of buckets. Ooh, they fancy, mm-hmm. <laughs> they have class. It's never going to happen, he says. I love to have company. I can't dance anymore, he said. I got old legs, but I'm a good con conversationalist. But those women over there, they're stuck up. Middle class stuck up. Well, I never heard middle class stuck up. I bet they brush their teeth too, huh? Anyway. The senior citizens on the south side of town travel in a sort of lonely hearts club tailgate. They are alone, having suffered a late life, divorce, or the death of a longtime partner. Their vehicles are big, expensive coachmen and Fleetwoods and Ramblers and the like. They work as a sort of neighborhood watch and the 
denizens of the flats do not cross the imaginary line. The majority of the society is women. They come to the slabs because it's free and close to Mexico, where liquor and prescription medicine can be bought cheap. They're educated, savvy about life, and competent mechanics. Yo, yeah, Mexicans are badass mechanics, yo. We'll fix anything and build it, too. Anyway, Donna Lee Cole was a member of Loners on Wheels, a rolling singles club with chapters across the United States. Mrs. Cole says there are at least 10,000 people who belong to this sub-society of aged hobos. People who drive around in search of nothing except tomorrow. They tend to be women, she said, because women live longer than men. Yeah, that makes sense. Her first marriage ended in a bad divorce. Her second husband, David, died from cancer 11 years ago. She waited for the children to insert her in their lives, but the children were living their own. She waited for the telephone to ring, and it never did, so she cashed cashed it in and hit the road. I decided I wasn't going to watch my life waste away, she said as the afternoon social began to congeal and the old men emerged from their trailers, hitching their belts over their navels, whipping their lips with their forearms, coming on with dopey smiles as they approached Mrs. Cole for their daily squeeze. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Though the group's models were singles mingle, there's a little physical love, much the much to the complaint of the men. Most of us are from a family that used to be, explained Mrs. Cole, 61, a petite widow from Alpina, Mitch, which bobbed blonde hair blonde hair. I'm thankful for a place to go, but I'm sad to end up like this, she said at the club's e evening happy hour, where two ladies were playing a guitar and an accordion. She eats dinner alone in her own RV with all these amenities, the water and septic tanks, the stove, solar panels, television. She is never home for Christmas, and the children receive a check that says, love, grandma. She never drives in neighborhoods with houses that have bars on the window. And if things get especially tough, she parks at the local police station. Her life is her own, she says. Generally, it is good. We women aren't looking for a man, she explained. The divorcees walked away from a bad situation and don't want another one. Smart. That's why they live longer, yo. <laughs> Anywho. The widows draw a blue cross on their husband's social security and would lose it if they married a new man. So you don't bother, you're just looking for some company. Mm -hmm. Besides, Cole says, look at the quality of men. No offense, they're bald and paunchy, toothless. I'm old, but I'm not dead. If a Mr. Wright came along, well then, I suppose the Lonely Hearts Club happy hour and social mixers dances twice a week and trips to town for steak dinners. Still, the Elvis generation goes to bed early and goes to bed alone. I was married 46 years, says Tina Fey at the afternoon mixer at the LOW slab. At 80, Mrs. Fey strikes an exotic figure, lean, ru rugged, coiffed, 
with a voice as thick as apricot nectar. Sounds like a heavy smoker there. Goddamn. My man told me to go on if I was to outlive him. So I took the road. But I hear, I feel him sitting there right next to me. I can't let him go. The mood is a bit sad until Ruth Halford, a 74-year-old widow with a silver permanent pipes up. I'm not sad about anything. I don't know, owe nobody nothing. I scratch my palms in the dirt. I'm not looking for anybody. The only person I'm in love with is me. Right, girls? Uh-huh. This is maddening to the eligible bachelor. Like a dog chasing a pork chop on a string. A waste of a perfectly beautiful woman. Those girls, they get to being independent and they don't need men, said John Claremont, 77, a retired truck driver. You can never get them to come home with you. The evening dissipated. The sun set a violent red. The lonely hearts played cards and listened to the old records. The gossip went around the tables. The pastor's wife was one topic. Mrs. Cole promised to go see the pastor on Sunday and take him soup. Such a shame, she said. They were together a long time. Mrs. Cole and the pastor would make a handsome couple. Someone said it with a real feeling. The others agreed. In the morning, Pastor Phil woke alone, but his change in his pocket put on his shoes, shared coffee around his fire. Rusty was there. So were others from the north side. The stumblebums and the algies. The pastor talked about random things from his life with his wife. The snowstorms and eggs in the rooming house. The smell of her hair. Ceramic snowmen she collected. Her face lightened by the dashboard lights. Recipes the children do not ask for. Grandchildren who, chances are, will not remember her name. Death in the desert, in some nameless place without longitude or shade. That's the tragedy of old age, the pastor said as his eyes welled once again. I'm alone. I'm derelict without her. Rusty stared at his feet. One guy asked for 20 bucks and an old transvestite drove by and waved. <laughs> so uh, that's Slab City for you guys. I thought it was going to be a little bit more exciting. Kind of like Mad Max kind of deal. But I guess it is. But like for old people <laughs> and bums. <laughs> Anywho, next one. Hey, you! Yeah, you over there! Do you like paranormal stuff? You like abandoned places? You like to, like, go check out some historical stuff? Maybe you like food. Maybe you like good music. I don't like Black Flag or maybe Black Sabbath. Well, we do too. So come check us out at Punk Rock Explorers Podcast. That's Punk Rock Explorers Podcast. Peace! Hey, let's take a break from this madness, right? How about some more madness? Take a break from the madness for with more madness? I don't know. Anywho, how about a badass fucking song, yo? Yeah, some death metal. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, it's actually a very talented one-man band, Eternal, and a uh, song name, To Deeper Realms.
Screaming Chewy Show, your source of entertainment and overall fuckery. Yeah! So, that was Slab City for you. The post-apocalyptic retirement home. Mm-hmm. Probably smells like dick pills and mothballs with brandy. That's what I picture anyway. <laughs> but hey, we're going overseas now. So pack your bags. Yeah, you got your bags packed? Got your toothbrush? Phone charger? No? Huh? Don't forget it. You ain't going to be asking me for my charger the whole freaking trip. No way. Maybe once or twice, but not fucking twice a day and shit. Anywho. So, you want to move to an island, right? Who doesn't? You know, beachfront property, fucking green, luscious vegetation everywhere, exotic animals. And you love seafood? Yeah, me too. Well, unlimited fishing. Oh my God, yes. Live off the land like you're off the grid. Paint a fucking volleyball with a face. Well, sir. (laughs) Anywho. Sounds fucking amazing, right? Your own island. Just off the coast of India. Oh, yeah. Perfect weather. Uh, just that you might get fucking murdered as soon as you step on the beach. Yeah, just one little problem. There's this tribe that's very hostile. And they don't take too kindly to strangers. Mm-hmm. You kind of don't belong around here, boy. <laughs> Who the fuck are these guys, right? Well, it's the Sentinelese. Also known as the Sentinelai. And the North Sentinel Islanders are an indigenous people who inhabit North Sentinel Island in the Bay of Bengal in India. They're considered one of the world's last uncontacted peoples, designated a particularly vulnerable tribe group and a scheduled tribe. They belong to the broader class of Andamanese people. Along with the great Andamanese, the Jarawas, the Onj, O-N-G-E, the Champagne, not Champagne, the actor, all right? The fuck would he be doing in an island like that? Hiding from El Chapo? It's C-H-O-M-P-E-N, Champagne. And the Nicobaris, the Sentinelese are one of the six native and often reclusive peoples of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Unlike the others, the Sentinelese appear to have consistently refused any interaction with the outside world. They are hostile to outsiders and have killed people who approached or landed on the island. In 1956, the government of India declared North Sentinel Island a tribal reserve and prohibited travel within three miles of it. It further maintains a constant armed patrol to prevent intrusions by outsiders. Photography is prohibited. There is a significant uncertainty as the group size, with estimates ranging between 15 and 500 individuals, but mostly 50 and 200. So, a little bit about the geography here about this place, right? Want to know more? 
The Sentinelese live on a North Sentinel Island in the Andaman Islands, which are the Bay of Bengal and administered by India. The island lies off the southwest coast of South Andaman Island. I'm getting tired of saying that same shit. Anywho, about 64 kilometers, 40 miles west of Andaman capital, Port Blair. It has an area of about 59.67 kilometers or 23.04 square miles and a roughly square outline. The seashore is about 50 yards wide, bordered by a littoral forest that gives way to a dense tropical evergreen forest. The island is surrounded by coral reefs and has a tropical climate. The orange called North Sentinel Island Chia Dak Wok Waya. I hope I said it right. <laughs> the Sentinelese have dark skin and may be shorter in stature than average humans. One report by Heinrich Horror described the man as 1.6 meters, 5 foot 3 tall. Possibly because of insular dwarfism, the so-called island effect, nutrition or simply genetic heritage. During uh, 2014 circumnavigation of their island, researchers put their height between 5 foot 3 and 5 foot 5 and recorded their skin color as dark shining black with well-lined teeth they showed no signs of obesity and very well prominent muscles well yeah there ain't no fucking mcdonald's there yo come on the sentinelese are hunter gatherers they like to use bows and arrows to hunt terrestrial wildlife and more rudimentary methods to catch local seafood such as mud crabs and molluscan shells. They are believed to eat a lot of mollusks given the abundance of roasted shells found in their settlements. Some of their practices have not evolved beyond those of the Stone Age. They are not known to engage in ag agriculture. It is unclear, unclear whether they have any knowledge of making fire though. Investigations have shown they use fire. Okay. So I guess <laughs> that don't make sense. Anyway, similarities as well as dissimilarities have been spotted with the orange people. They prepare their food similarly. They share common traits in body decoration and material culture. There are also similarities in the design of their canoes. One of all the Andamese tribes, only the Senemese and Onge make canoes. The Onge call them Shanku Similarities with the Jarawas have been also noted. Their bows have similar patterns. No such marks are found on Anjou bows. Finally, both tribes sleep on the ground, while the Anjou sleep on raised platforms. The metal arrowheads and adz adzi blades are quite large and heavier than those of Andamanese tribes. The Sentinelese reside in small, temporary huts erected on four poles with slanted leaf-covered roofs. They recognize the value of metal, having scavenged it to create tools and weapons and accepted aluminum cookware left by the National Geographic Society in 1974. They have also de developed canoes suitable for lagoon fishing 
but used long poles rather than paddles or oars to propel them. They seldom used the canoes for cross-island navigation. Both genders wear bark strings. The men always tuck daggers in their waist belts. They also wear some ornaments such as necklace and headbands, but are essentially naked. Hell yeah, free ballin'. The wearing of jawbones of deceased relatives has been reported. Artistic engravings of simple geometric designs in shade contrast have been seen on their weapons. Hell yeah, man, gotta have that, uh, that cow, yo. Fuck, what's it called? Anywho. <laughs> the women have been seen to dance by slapping both palms on their thighs while simultaneously tapping their feet rhythmically in a bent knee stance. Well, that sounds familiar, right? Because of their complete isolation, nearly nothing is known about the Sentinelese language, which is therefore unclassified. It has been recorded that the Jarawa language is mutually unintelligible with the Sentinelese language. There's uncertainty as the range of overlap with the Anji language of any. The Anthropological Survey of India's 2016 handbook on vulnerable tribe groups considers them mutually unintelligible. The Sentinelese have been widely described as Stone Age tribe, with some reports claiming they have lived in isolation for over 60,000 years. But Pandia speculates that the Sentinelese arose either from a deliberate, more recent migration or from drifting off the little Andaman. Hmm, sounds like, uh, what is that, parallel evolution? So, they... But let's uh, talk about some uh, contact here, right? Let's get to the good stuff, right? You're like, Chewie, what the fuck? I want to hear about them fucking killing people and shit. And eating them like in the movies. Okay, okay, calm down. In 1771, an East India Company hydrographic survey vessel, the Diligent, observed a multiple multitude of lights upon the shore of North Sentinel Island, which is the island's first recorded mention. The crew did not investigate. Smart. That's probably why they lived. During the late summer monsoon of 1867, the Indian merchant vessel Neve Fuck, I suck at these days, yo, my bad. Foundered on the reef off, off North Sentinel, all the passengers and crew reached the beach safely. But as they proceeded for their breakfast on the third day, they were subject to a sudden assault by a group of naked, short-haired, red-painted islanders with arrows that were probably iron-tipped. The captain, who fled in the ship's boat, was found days later by a brig in a Royal Navy sent a rescue party to the island. Upon arrival, the party discovered that the survivors had managed to repel the attackers with sticks and stones, and they had not reappeared. Abundanese scholar Vishwakit Pandya notes that the Onj narratives often recall 
voyages by their ancestors to North Sentinel to, pro to procure metal. Metal. So, the first recorded visit to the island by a colonial officer. Uh-huh. Oh, shit. We're getting there. We're getting there. Was by Jeremiah. Of course, it's Jeremiah, yo. Jeremiah was a friend of mine. I think I fucked that song up. Anywho, Jeremiah Humphrey in 1867, he recorded seeing naked islanders catfishing fish with bows and arrows and was informed by the great enemies that they were Jarawas. That'd be fucking scary, yo. Imagine getting fucking ambushed by short, naked people painted red. Like, what the fuck, yo? Are they painted in blood? <laughs> I'd be pretty fucking scared, yo. So, in 1880, in an effort to establish contact with the Sentinelese, British naval officer Maurice Vital Portman, who was serving as a colonial administrator to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, led an armed group of Europeans. Uh-huh. Deja vu, right? Europeans, natives, uh -huh. along with convict orderlies and Andamese trackers, whom they had already befriended to North Sentinel Island. On their arrival, the islanders fled into the tree line after several days of futile search, during which they found abandoned villages and paths. Portman's men captured six individuals an elderly man and woman and four children. The man and woman died shortly after their arrival in Port Blair and the children sickened. Portman hurriedly sent the children back to the Sentinel Island with ample gifts to establish friendly contact and order their peculiarly idiotic expression of countenance and manner of behaving. Portman visited the island again in 1883 1885 and 1887. <laughs> yeah, bring the kid, the sick kids back with gifts. Like, sorry, y'all, we fucked up. My bad. In 1896, a convict escaped from the penal colony on Great Andaman Island on a makeshift raft and drifted across the North Sentinel Beach. His body was discovered by a search party some days later with several arrow piercings and cutthroat. The party did not see any islanders. Mm -hmm. In an 1899 speech, Richard Carnac Temple, who uh, served as chief commissioner of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands from 1895 to 1904, reported that he had toured North Sentinel Island to capture fugitives, but upon landing discovered they had been killed by the inhabitants, who retreated in haste upon seeing his party approach. Tempo also recorded a case where Sentinelese apparently drifted off to the Orange and fraternized with them over the course of two years. When Tempo and Portman accompanied accompanied him to the tribe and attempted to establish friendly contact they did not recognize the individ individual and responded aggressively by shooting arrows at the group 
The man refused to remain on the island. Portman cast doubt on the exact time span the Centralese spent with the Ange and believed that he had probably been raised by the Ange since childhood. Temple went on to describe the Centralese as a tribe which slays every stranger. However, inoffensive on sight, whether a forgotten member of itself or another enemy's tribe or a complete foreigner. MCC Bonington, a British official, visited the island on two separate occasions, 1911 and 1932, to conduct a census. On the first occasion, he came across eight men on the beach and another five in two canoes who retreated into the forest. The party progressed some miles into the island without facing any hostile response and saw a few huts with slanted roofs. Notably, the Sentinelese were counted as a standalone group for the first time in 1911 census. There have been other recorded instances of British administrators visiting the island, including Rogers in a 1902, but none of the expeditions after 1880 had any ethnographic purpose, probably because of the island's small size and unfavorable location. 1954, Italian explorer Lidio Cipriani, Cipriani, visited the island but did not come across any inhabitants and he attempted to throw meatballs and pasta at them. No, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> 1977, M.V. Rusley ran aground on the North Sentinel Reefs. On August 2nd, 1981, the cargo ship Primrose carrying a cargo between Australia and Bangladesh ran aground in rough seas just off North Sentinel Island, stranding a small crew. Oh, not good. After a few days, the captain dispatched a distress call asking for a drop of firearms and reported boats being prepared by more than 50 armed islanders intending to invade the ship. Oh, shit. Strong waves prevented the Sentinelese canoes from reaching the ship and deflected their arrows. Nearly a week later, the crew were evacuated by a civilian helicopter contracted to the Oil and Natural Gas Corporation with support from Indian naval forces. The Sentinelese scoured the abandoned shipwrecks to salvage iron for their weaponry. Mohammed, a scrap dealer who won a government contract to dismantle the Prime Rose wreck about 300 feet from the shoreline and assembled men for the purpose, recorded friendly exchange of fruits and small metal scraps with the Sentinelese, who often canoed to the workplace at low tide. Oh shit, some friendly contact, what? So this is what he said, right? After two days in the early morning, when it was low tide, we saw three Sentinelese canoes with about a dozen men about 50 feet away from the deck of Primrose. We were skeptical, skeptical and scared and had no other solution but to bring out supply of bananas and show it to them to attract them 
and minimize any chance of hostility. Hey, look, look, we're friendly. Don't kill me. They took the bananas and came up on board of Prime Rose and were frantically looking around for smaller pieces of scrap metal. They visited us regularly at least twice or thrice in a month while we worked at the site about 18 months. Uh, crazy, right? In 1956, government of India declared North Sentinel Island a tribal reserve prohibited travel within three miles. Photography is prohibited. The constant armed patrol prevents intrusion by outsiders. 1967, a group of 20 people comprising the governor, armed forces, and naval personnel were led by T.N. Pandit an anthropologist working for the Anthropological Survey of India to North Sentinel Island to explore it and befriend the Sentinelese. Oh yeah, make some more friends. This was the first visit to the island by a professional anthropologist. Through binoculars, the group saw several clusters of Sentinelese along the coastline who retreated into the forest as the team advanced. The team followed their footprints and after about a kilometer found a group of 18 lean-to huts made from grass and leaves that showed signs of recent occupation as evidenced by the still burning fires at the corners of the hut. The team also discovered raw honey, skeletal remains of pigs, wild fruits, and adzi a multi-prolonged wooden spear, bows, arrows, cane baskets, fishing nets, bamboo pots, and wooden buckets. Metal working was evident. The team failed to establish any contact and withdrew after leaving gifts. The government was aware that leaving the Sentinelese completely isolated and ceasing to claim any control would lead to rampant illegal exploitation of the natural resources by the numerous mercenary outlaws who took refugee in those regions and probably contribute to the Sentinelese extinction. Accordingly, in 1970, an official serving party landed at an isolated spot on the island and erected a stone tablet. The Ten Commandments. No, I'm just fucking. <laughs> Atop a disused native hearth that declared the island part of India. During the 1970s and 1980s, Pandit undertook several visits, visits to the island, sometimes as an expert advisor and tour parties, including dignitaries who wished to encounter an arboreal tribe beginning in 1981. He regularly led officials' expeditions with the purpose of establishing friendly contact. Many of these got a friendly uh, reception with hordes of gifts left for them, but some ended in violent encounters which were mostly suppressed. Some of the expeditions, 1987, 1992, etc., were entirely documented on film. Yeah. Sometimes the Centralese waved and sometimes they turned their backs and assumed a defecating posture. 
Oh, that's fucking great. So they're like, fuck you. We shit on you. <laughs> Which Panic took as a sign of their not being welcome. Well, no shit, yo. On some occasions, they rushed out of the jungle to take the gifts, but then attacked the party with arrows. Other obscene gestures in response to contact parties, such as swaying of penises, <laughs> have been noted. <laughs> I wonder if they did the helicopter, yo. Dude, now, that makes me question. The helicopter, right? When you swing your penis around this in a circle. Now, or there's no way they saw that on TV. Unless people visited there and did that and that's where they learned it. Or is that just human instinct, yo? You have a penis, you just instinctively know to swing it around. Or do a pelvis thrust like that wrestler. Was it Triple H? Triple X, I don't know, some shit. <laughs> Anywho, on some of his visits, Pandit brought some Anje to the island to try to communicate with the Sentinelese, but the attempts were usually futile and Pandit reported one instance of angering the Sentinelese. Damn. Well... And the plot thickens. Alright, getting more recent here. This happened on January 27th, 2006. Indian fishermen Sundar Raj and Pandit Tiwadi, who had been attempting to illegally harvest crabs off North Sentinel Island, drifted towards the island after their boat's makeshift anchor failed during the night. They did not respond to warning calls from the passing fishermen and their boat drifted into the shallows near the island where a group of Sentinelese warriors attacked the boat and killed the fishermen with axes. Fucking brutal, yo. According to one report, the bodies were later put on bamboo stakes facing out to sea like scarecrows. Three days later, an Indian Coast Guard helicopter dispatched for the purpose found the buried bodies. When the helicopter tried to retrieve them, it was attacked by the Sentinelese armed with spears and arrows, and the mission was soon abandoned. There were contrasting views in the local community as to whether the Sentinelese ought to be prosecuted for murder. Pandya hypothesizes that the aggressive response might have been caused by the sudden withdrawal of those gift-carrying expeditions, which was not influenced or informed by any acts of the Sentinelese. He also notes that the, whilst the images of the hostile Sentinelese, captured by the helicopter sorties, were heavily propagated in the media, the images of them burying the dead were never released. The selective display led to an effective negation of the friendly images that were circulated in the aftermath of the 1991 contact, which have been already taken out of the public display and restored in the 1975 geographic narrative. Ah, you want more death? Is that what you want? More killing stories? Okay, all right. In November 2018, oh shit, yo, John Allen Chow, 
a 26-year-old American trained and set by the U.S.-based Christian Missionary Organization, All Nations, traveled to North Sentinel Island with the aim of contacting and living amongst the Sentinelese in the hope of converting them to Christianity. Oh, I bet that turned out really, really well, right? You know, you go to the island and tell them, hey, whatever God you're worshiping, well, you're wrong. This is the real God. Here's a book. <laughs> Chow did not seek the necessary permits required to visit the island and traveled illegally to the island by bribing local fishermen. He expressed a clear desire to convert the tribe in awareness of the risk of death he faced and of the illegality of his visit, writing, Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold where none have heard or even had the chance to hear your name? The eternal life of this tribe is at hand, and I think it's worthwhile to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them. Or at God, if I get killed, don't retrieve my body. On no November 15th, Chow attempted his first visit in a fishing boat, which took him about 500 to 700 meters from shore. The fisherman warned Chow not to go further, but he canoed towards the shore with a waterproof Bible. As he approached, they attempted to communicate with the islanders to offer gifts but he retreated after facing hostile responses. On another visit, Chow recorded that the islanders reacted to him with a mixture of amusement, bewilderment, and hostility. He attempted to sing worship songs to them. Oh yeah, I bet that's going to work real well. And spoke to them in Xhosa. X-H-O-S-A. I don't know what the fuck that is. <laughs> after which they often fell silent. Other attempts to communicate ended with them bursting into laughter. <laughs> That's fucked up, yo. Why am I laughing? They apparently communicated with lots of high-pitched sounds and gestures. Eventually, when he, when he tried to hand over fish and gifts, a boy shot a metal-headed arrow that pierced the Bible Chow was holding in front of his chest which he retreated again. Oh, fuck. Take that as a sign, yo. Get the fuck out of there. On his final visit. Oh, Lord. November 17th, Chow instructed the fishermen to leave without him. The fishermen later saw the islanders dragging Chow's body, and the next day, they saw his body on the shore. Police subsequently arrested seven fishermen for assisting Chow to get close to the restricted island. His death was treated as a murder, but there was no suggestion that the Sentinelese would be charged, and the U.S. government confirmed that it did not ask the Indian government to press charges against the tribe. Indian officials made several attempts to recover Chow's body, but eventually abandoned those efforts. An anthropologist involved in the case told The Guardian that the risk of dangerous clash between investigators and the islanders was too great to justify any further attempts. Damn. So there you have it, folks. The Sentinelese Island. 
You want to go live there? Huh? Yeah, I didn't think so. So here's the last one. Last but not least. And this is considered the number one most dangerous place. Right? Now, before I, you know, start talking about this, let me uh, read you some reviews <laughs> on fucking Google, yo. Yeah, some Google reviews on, get this, Snake Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to hear the reviews? Fucking love them, yo. So, number one, the snakes were cool, but otherwise a bit underwhelming. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Amazing. I came with four people, now going back home by myself. The snakes were fun to play with. They always went closer to us to play. Yeah, I'm sure you went there, buddy. This place has such a good vibe. My friend picked one up. <laughs> he picked one of the beautiful snakes. They immediately started breakdancing on the floor and then fell asleep or so, I was told. Can't wait to go there by myself. These fucking guys, yo. <laughs> fucking comedians, man. <laughs> Alright. So I'm just gonna make this short. I'm getting fucking tired, yo. So, it's called Ilha de Cuemada Grande, also known as Snake Island, is an island off the coast of Brazil and the Atlantic Ocean. It is administered as part of the municipality of Itanhaim in the state of Sao Paulo. The island is small in size, only 43 hectares. 106 acres and has a temperate climate the island's terrain varies considerably ranging from bare rock to rainforest it is the only home of the critically endangered venomous bothros insularis golden lance the pit viper which has a diet of birds the snakes became trapped on the island when Rising sea levels covered up the land that connected it to the mainland. The ensuing selection pressured allowed the snakes to adapt to their new environment, increasing rapidly in population and rendering the island dangerous to public visitation. Coimada Grande is closed to the public in order to protect both people and snake population. Access is only available to the Brazilian Navy and selected researchers vetted by Chico Mendes Institute for Biodiversity Conservation, the Brazilian Federal Conservation Unit. Fucking crazy, yo, right? Shit. So, check this out. Because there's so many snakes on one island, by some estimates, as one snake to every square meter of, of the island. There's competition for resources. Despite a population of 41 recorded bird species on Coimada Grande, the golden lance head relies on only two, the Truglodytes musculus, the southern house wren, which is usually able to avoid the golden lance head as a predator, and the Chilean Elinia, a species of flycatcher, which feeds on vegetation in the same area as a snake. The island was thought to have a population of about 430,000 snakes, but recent estimates are much lower. 
The first systematic study of population of the Golden Lancet found the population to be 2,000 to 4,000 concentrated almost entirely in the rainforest area of the island. This might happen because there was a limited amount of resources and the population became level. But in 2015, an estimate by a herpetologist on a Discovery Channel documentary stated that the population remains at 2,000 to 4,000 golden landsheads. Bothrops and Solaris also may be at risk from inbreeding, effects of which are evident in the population. Because of the overall low population of the golden landshead, the snake was labeled critically endangered on the IUCN red list of threatened species. It also, <clears throat> it also was a place on the list of Brazil's endangered animals. The island is home to a smaller population of Dipsas albifrons, a non-venomous snake. Well, there you have it, folks. So if you want to travel the world or go live somewhere, don't go to those three places or go, go ahead. But hey, fun fact, did you know the Snake Island? Um, you know, many experts and scientists have all agreed that that was ground zero, the Garden of Eden. That's where the first and ultimate sin was committed. That's where Adam and Eve lived. That's where Eve ate the apple and fucked it up for everybody else. Yeah, in that place right there. And in fact, that's why there's so many snakes there now, right? Because it's ground zero for sin. Now there's devil snakes all around. I'm just fucking with you guys. I just totally made that up. <laughs> oh my God, I'm tired, man. Ugh. Well... I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And uh, hey, don't forget to subscribe, like, share, check out my YouTube, my Facebook, right? All uh, same name, Screaming Chewy Show. And um, yeah, if you want to support this podcast, find me on anchor.com. And uh, yeah, just click support this podcast. That easy, yo. God damn, man. <laughs> but hey. Thanks for listening. Peace. Yo, did you enjoy that music I played in this episode? Fuck yeah, right? Fucking amazing. And hey, if you want to hear more, if you want to listen to more, check out Eternal. Check them out on YouTube. Same name, Eternal. You can look up their videos, listen to more songs. Hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified when they come out with new videos, new songs. Or check them out on Facebook, Scythe Black Metal. Right there, they have more music, live shows, fucking amazing. Next band I want to talk about is Veritas. Yes, um, you could check them out at veritas.rock. And um, as in V-E-R-I-T-A-S dot rock. And uh, you could purchase their album that came out last year in February. Or you could pre-order their new album coming out this summer. Yeah, this summer. Like in the movies. <laughs> Anywho, hope you guys enjoyed it. And thanks. Peace. Check them out.
everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can find me at anchor.fm slash screamingchewygmail.com. There'll be three options for a monthly subscription. First one, I believe, starts at a dollar a month, yo. Yeah, dollar a month. Yeah, and if you don't want to, that's cool. You can follow me on Facebook and YouTube, Screaming Chewy Show, for some memes, some more videos for episodes, and behind-the-scenes kind of deal, right? You can follow me on Twitter, uh, Screaming Chewy. Yeah, not Screaming Chewy Show. I should probably change it. But it's just Screaming Chewy. And uh, thanks for listening. Peace.